Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath format helps you learn at your own pace and fit earning a degree into your life. From before you enroll to after you graduate, you'll be supported by people who are invested in your success so you can pursue your goals knowing that help is available if you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network. Today on the James Altucher Show. We do things, we create because it's in us, but actually, again, by virtue of the fact that we're social beings and, and, and our identity is bound up in what we create, then that identity needs to be confirmed by others, right? So it's it's interesting thing, identity. It's, you know, it's simultaneously what makes us different, but it's also what binds us together with a group. And I think the interesting thing is that years ago, you'd have a much smaller group or, you know, kind of right. validating that. Now, you have people out there, James, that don't have a vested interest in you feeling good about yourself. Actually, there's people out there that would find it interesting if you didn't. And you've got to ask yourself, do I give them, is the source not important? I kind of think of of all these sort of message boards, whatever you want to call them, the comments, it's like a big bathroom door, right? It's a big old filthy bathroom door that anyone can kind of take out their pen and have at it. And you're going to have sort of thoughtful responses sometimes on bathroom doors, I get, but you're going to have a lot of stuff that's because I'm having a bad day, why should you have a good one, right? So I think there's, there's something really important about the source and who's giving you that validation and maybe kind of exploring... If it's if it's quality or quantity, maybe you know that's that's what we've kind of sold our souls for quantity. So there there is something I think about taking away some of that power from the other, right? And how do you do that? So I am here with the amazing, and I do mean it when I say amazing, Dr. Linda Papadopoulos, Linda. There's so many things for us to talk about, but first, welcome to the show. Brilliant to be here. Thanks for having me. And you've been, I don't even know where to start. You've been on a, you've written a ton of books. You've written like 10 books altogether. How many books have you written? Um, This is my uh, ninth book that's just out. Ninth book. Almost as many books as me. (laughs) Not quite. But some of my books were easy. I wrote like a children's book. That was a little easier. So uh, your latest book is called Unfollow, Living Life on Your Own Terms. We're going to talk about that. But I also want to talk about some of your other books that you've written earlier. In particular, there's this one title that kind of stands out to me, What Men Say, What Women Hear. I love that title. <laughs> Good title, right? Uh, and before we get into these these books and other things that you've done and written, um, you've also been on like a, a ton of reality TV in, in England, your, 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 the country you're currently come from. You're, you're originally from Canada. You were on Celebrity Fit Club. Big Brother, Double Cross. Well, why were you on Celebrity Fit Club? I was a psychologist on Celebrity Fit Club. I was the psychologist on the first um, ever uh, series of Big Brother. And then now I do a lot more uh, sort of news-based stuff. So I do stuff for CNN, I do stuff for Sky. But I fronted shows on National Geographic, on uh, on TLC, on Discovery. So it, it's, been, it's been great. So I actually, I started off by accident in TV. Some of my research into... Um, into psychodermatology, into skin conditions, was profiled on a Channel 4 show. And this was like back in 2000s, like, oh my God, I feel so old, like almost 18 years ago now. 
And uh, you are really old. Oh my god! I mean, just looking at you, I can say. <laughs> no, everybody should just Google her and see how old she looks. You're very sweet. No, but it it was um, it's crazy. Uh, I remember at the time there was no such thing as reality TV, right? So they were like, we're doing this great social experiment. It's called Big Brother. And you're going to be the psychologist on it. And I was like, fabulous. And they would send me VC, you know, VCRs, like tapes, like videotapes. And what was really cool is because reality TV hadn't been created, what ended up happening is you you saw a much more purest view of what would actually happen if people forgot they were being watched. Whereas right, so, I think- so like I imagine reality TV now is much more scripted in a weird way to create conflict so that it's easy, it, it shows up better on camera. What you were seeing was probably the, the few-year window where there actually was reality TV. Like, it was real. Indeed, indeed. I remember uh, watching one time when this guy was like, oh, man, I told my boss I'd be off for two weeks, and like this this is like, I'm never, I have not been voted off yet. And the other guy's going, well, look, no one's watching this. Just tell him you weren't feeling well. You'll find something to... They had no clue what And Big to Brother expect. was huge. It was mad. It was a phenomenon. And, 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 you know, and obviously since this has to evolve and change because, you know, it, we, you know, it's like anything, right? It's, uh, you know, we, we want more, we expect more, but I think it, it attracts a, a different ilk of personality. Maybe not so much a different ilk, but a very kind of certain strain. Like there's not as much diversity. Whereas in that first one, there was a lot more diversity of character, both in terms of, of background, in terms of personality, which was, it was a brilliant thing to be a part of. Well, you were the psychologist for that. And I guess I'm just curious. It seems like you're, what's great is you're kind of the professional psychologist for many of these things that are really actually important to society. Like for instance, too much weight and how, like you, you wrote a book called Mirror, Mirror. You, you, the idea of how we see ourselves in the mirror often affects how we view our self-worth. And so, so you were the psychologist on Big Brother and on you know these other ones, Celebrity Fit Club and, and other shows. How much of weight loss is psychological? I think a big part of of weight loss and weight gain is psychological. You know, um, food in our culture is rarely just food. If you think of how many times you've consoled someone or congratulated someone with something to eat, if you think of how many times you've eaten because you were bored or you felt guilty about eating or you've you've done that bargaining in your head that, oh, I've, I've, I've been good, so now I can be bad, or I've been bad, so I have to be good. So it, it holds a really sort of interesting position in our psyche from an evolutionary point of view. You know, more people have died because of starvation since the beginning of time than anything else, right? And I think that's probably why we're also so materialistic in society. We, you know, the, you know, the need we're to consume— we're gonna- Lose and starve yeah. and be kicked out of the tribe and whatever. Completely. So this need to consume, this greed, you know, it was to some extent selected for, right? So it's really interesting when you're dealing with eating disorders. So I clinically, I see a lot of eating disorders on both spectrums. And actually, it's what you're seeing is something very similar. It's it's a very dysfunctional relationship with food. And actually, I, you know, I was thinking about this the other day. I was speaking to a friend of mine who's a producer. don't know how true this is, but he was saying... 52% of programming on TV is food-related. So we fetishize it. There's like whole... I've seen, since I've been here, there's whole shows on cupcakes and donuts, like whole hour-long programs. So again... I guess because that's <laughs> that's also a format that's really easy to film and it's really easy to package up and sell a format to other countries. So it's a nice... As opposed to like a sitcom that takes place in New yeah, York, yeah. that's not a format you could package up and sell to Japan, whereas a show about cupcakes... 
boom, that could just right away go to Japan. Sure, but there's something, I think, quite pathological of giving food that much like presence in our lives. Like, yes, it's yummy or not, but the idea that we we, we photograph it and we engage with it as much as we do, I, I don't think that, that that's particularly healthy. And I, I think that is to some extent kind of contributing to to the rise. And it's it's kind of the rise of problems, I think, in obesity and, and in restriction. The, the photographing of food, have you seen this? Like, I've been in a restaurant and having people sort of take snaps. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I once, um, this was in California. I, um, I was sitting in a cafe and I, there's a commotion at the table next to me and a woman uh, was basically, she had a whole team of photographers around. Like they were had real professional equipment and they were photographing her with the meal she had just ordered and it was really nicely laid out. And so it was this kind of like food porn kind of thing associated with her and her Instagram. And I said, so I went up to her and I said, oh, what's your, um, what are you doing? And she said, oh, it's for her her Instagram account. So I looked at her Instagram account. She didn't have that many followers, but I guess this was her way of building up. And uh, I don't know, it just, it seemed like a weird thing. But I guess this is the point of your book, Unfollow, is that um, even though there's so many great benefits to the internet, there's all these potential problems. There's all these potential I almost want to say addictions that we can fall prey to, like this this idea that, oh, everyone else is living a better life than me. Because the only things you want to photograph are the things that are good and great in your life. So people think, oh, everybody's living a great life. And then the same thing with food and, and so on. So so when you're the psychologist, though, uh, uh, dealing with food issues, what and given that they're not your patients and you're given a limited amount of time, what do you, what do what's like the 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 barest advice you give people if they're trying to lose weight in like two weeks, three weeks, whatever. I think there's there's a there's a couple things you can do, sort of you know, to to sort of trick your brain into it. I think number one, it's around expectations. One of the the biggest problems is is that we go to extremes, we polarize, right? So either I'm an angel and just eating green, or I'm terrible, I'm a very big slob and I'm eating junk. And the problem with that is is that I wake up in the morning and I have my green juice and I meet my friends and I have my salad, but then I pass by you know my favorite coffee place and I stop for a muffin. And because I've done that, I feel guilty. So I'm like, oh, the heck with it. I'm going to have a pizza tonight. I'm going to have a tub of ice cream. If you can kind of get off that all or nothing thinking and understand that actually, you know, it's it's absolutely fine and within the realms of normality to to do something much more reasonable, 70-30. Make 70% good choices. I think in life in general, if you make 70% good choices, probably you're going to come out okay at the end. And that's a, a big part of sort of eating well. I think the other thing is how much you think about food. Food has become a metaphor for so much else. I remember on Fit Club um, <clears throat> doing... It's really interesting exercise with this lovely woman that that was on Carney um, and uh, Carney Wilson. Carly Wilson, that's right. And uh, she'd struggled with weight for years. And we went into her larder, and I said, "I'm going to pick out food, and I want you to tell me the first word that comes into your mind." And you know, I'd pick up uh, crisps, chips, and she'd be like, "Stress, anxiety." I'd pick up chocolate, and she'd be like, "Oh, comfort, love." And it was fascinating. Everything I picked up was, you know, was there was a euphemism for something else, right? Was you know, food had become a you know a replacement for feeling, for love, for um, for emotion. And so, if you can ask yourself, 
why am I eating this? Why am I rewarding myself with a greasy takeaway? Is that really a reward? Have I construed it as such? You know, is there something else I can do? Why am I, if I'm stressed, is the best course of action to kind of eat lots of, uh, you know, popcorn or crisps or whatever the case is? Or might I speak to a friend? Might I go, you know, take my energy out with having a jog? Might I think about solving the problem in some way? So the idea of this shortcut to every emotion being food is something that actually you can retrain in your brain and think about it. So keep a diary, I would say, if people want to do something. Sit down, write not just what you eat, but when you eat it and what you're thinking about, what's going on beforehand. But let me ask you a question. So like, let's say all day long I eat donuts. Okay. Okay, Let's say that's my obsession and I eat donuts. And, you know, there's also a physical component that happens like in my stomach, the donuts will leave behind their bacteria and that bacteria is living organisms that crave more donuts. And so that's part of the cravings that if you eat a certain type over and over again, a certain type of food, that's what's the the bacteria in your stomach is going to crave that. And it's it's really hard to get over those cravings. Indeed. And also from the behavioralist point of view, right? So the idea that, you know, it's sort of Pavlovian. I associate donut with a treat, with comfort. I remember with my little, uh, my daughter's just turned 15 when she was little. And I'd say, do you want a treat? Sometimes I'd give her, you know, cut up red peppers. Sometimes I'd give her chocolate. Sometimes I'd give her a book. So this idea that it's the only treat or have to be bad if it's a treat, you know, again, the craving is also psychological as well as physiological. You're absolutely right. So you need to work, I guess, on both things. And the physiology, like you very rightly say, we know that if you kind of abstain from something for about 10 days, actually you're pretty okay then. Yeah, because then the bacteria has time to die yeah. out and and yeah. it's your body's waiting for the new set of cravings to come in. Precisely. Which but, could be kale or whatever. Yeah, gotta love that. <laughs> gotta have me some kale. But I think also, psychologically, you need to work on that. Why is it that association? Why have I kind of, you know, it, it, and I think this is also about the amount that we eat. I always find this fascinating as well. They do study after study, and one of the big things we know is if you blindfold somebody, they eat less. Why? Because they listen to, the, you know, how satiated they are from what their stomach's telling them rather than how much is on the plate. But wait, isn't it true that um, it takes 20 minutes for your stomach to tell your brain that it's full? So, yeah, so there's there's a lag. And there's an evolutionary reason for that there, too. There is. And th- that lag, and that's really interesting. So in Japan, we know they actually have a saying for this lag to finish when you're 80% full because, mm. you know, it takes that time. But we also know, again, that, that the eye, the visual, is a very big stimulus. We also know, this is a, one of my favorite studies, they, they looked at people eating popcorn in movie theaters. And for one group, they said, eat with your dominant hand. Another group said, they said, simply just eat with your non-dominant hand. That's so funny. I can't even imagine Imagine eating popcorn with my left hand. <laughs> right? But if you ever try it... It probably would taste bad. <laughs> yeah, right. I know. Probably would. But you will eat less. I don't know if it's because it'll taste bad, but I think it's probably because you're going to have to think about it, right? So you're actually going through the process of thinking, whereas it becomes just a kind of a habitual stuffing of one's face with the right hand. So these little tricks you can employ to kind of help you kind of get out of those uh, bad systems you've, you've started. Yeah. So I like this idea of a 70-30 rule where kind of giving yourself permission to make some bad decisions. Like in, in entrepreneurship and starting a business, this works as well. They say if, I mean, it's all made up percentage, but they say if you could just make 51% good decisions, you're going to have a huge business. So this idea that imperfection is is not only acceptable, but it could actually even drive your business or, or drive your decisions because you'll understand which decisions are better. You'll, you'll more easily understand which decisions are bad or not. And I think also it's less stress to have uh, the notion that, oh, okay, 
I I think looking back, I think I did, and even if you keep a diary, I think I did seventy percent good, thirty percent mm-hmm. bad. What other areas of life do you think that seventy thirty rule applies? I feel I feel that we have another book coming out for you, like <laughs> se- the seventy thirty rule. Book. That would be a good. That's a good title. <laughs> it is, isn't it? Definitely. Do you know what I think that it's interesting you ask that? There's a there's a chapter in Unfollow that I t- speak about perfectionism and. And I think it is one of the most insidious things out there, this this sort of cult of perfectionism. And, and I think it's getting worse because we live in such a visual society. So I think the onus to kind of present something perfect um, is, is huge. I think it's getting worse because we celebrate success we caricaturize it like and we celebrate it so easily and, and it's again it's always around having success quickly so you know Forbes millionaires under 30 young Hollywood it's always about yeah I want to get the Academy Award but I want to get it when you know I, I look a certain way and I want to and also I think and, and you must find this as well as an entrepreneur I mean, I'm so in awe of what you've done and I, I loved speaking to you because we, we hung out yesterday which was so cool and you just said something that really stuck with me I was telling my husband when I spoke to him you're like do you know what you said Linda it's really freaking hard to build a business it's really disgusting sometimes and hard and difficult and icky and I was like saying to my husband it's so good to hear someone successful say that because you know what happens everyone else is like oh yeah I wrote this idea on the back of a beer mat sold it for a kajillion you know dollars and you're like really I feel really bad because I'm working really hard haven't sold anything for a kajillion dollars so I think this idea of perfectionism also makes us lie (laughs) makes us kind of or amplify the good and minimize the bad so it's so distorted what we're telling each other and as a consequence we we never feel good enough, pretty enough, rich enough, smart enough, thin enough, or fat enough, or healthy, whatever the enough is, right? Yeah, why well, don't, I mean, it sort of makes sense. Like if I'm going to post a photo on Instagram or Facebook, I tend to, in general, people tend to, um, so I'll, I'll say I intend to, uh, tend to, whatever it is, I tend to post the photos of where I look the best or where I'm doing something exciting so it's hard like yesterday we were doing the this experiment I posted a photo of me scared and nervous before I was going on stage to do some stand-up comedy instead of usually I post a photo while I'm on stage doing this exciting great thing I just posted this random photo uh scared or nervous beforehand and actually that was pretty I got I got a lot of upvotes or likes or whatever brilliant so no I thought that was so brave and you're absolutely right and in fact research shows that we tend to post when we're doing something fabulous we're on a high and and we tend to surf and like look at other people's photos when we're on a low so the differential why do we surf when we're on lows because we've got more time and also again because we're comparative animals we kind of need to look at how the the group's doing we need a baseline right like you remember in school it wasn't good enough to get an a you need to make sure the people around you got a few b's because your a then didn't really mean that much right and it's the same thing now so you know we need to see where we stand in relation to others and we tend to to do this in a way that um we tend to just when we have the time to kind of surf right so and which means we're usually alone so the surroundings actually really matter we don't tend to surf when with other people uh when we're quiet and when we're not doing something fabulous so as a consequence you do see this difference so so okay so you're uh a therapist you're a cognitive behavioral therapist right so i'm going to tell you my problems with online and based on what you've learned in your book unfollow I want you to help me out. Okay. So I, when I'm, I try very hard, by the way, I never hit the home button on Facebook. So I don't see the feed. I try never to look at 
the feed, like the basic Twitter feed, the basic Facebook feed, the basic Instagram feed. I, I tend to use social media almost as like a business platform where I could publish articles, publish whatever. But that said, sometimes you can't help it. Sure. So here's where I, I some, maybe it's, I'm, maybe I'm most tempted when I'm at a low. I, I don't mm-hmm. know. I'll have to think about that. But um, if I see my friends interacting with each other, oh, so-and-so's over for dinner with so-and-so, how come they didn't invite me? That's a common reaction I have. Sure, sure it is. Um, look, I, I think there, there's something around ensuring that you, we, we know, study after study shows us, limit the, the amount of time that, that you're on. It doesn't mean you have to go off. I mean, it's an important part of our lives, but limit. It's also There's also something about increasing the amount of time you have face-to-face contact. We actually know that's more emotionally nourishing. It, it, just, it just simply is, probably because we've been doing it for millions of years, as opposed to like 20 minutes or whatever, you know, however long we've been online. And yet, let me play devil's advocate. Mm-hmm. So many people have met through, I mean, so many of my closest friends, mm-hmm. actually, I've met through text interactions, which is still maybe the way I keep track of many of them. But, uh, you know, all the time, I, I mean, it's nice to eventually meet them face to face, but so many friendships and relationships have started off with just text, texting yeah. through Facebook or whatever. Sure. And, and I think the starting off is a great place to meet there. But I think nothing is going to have the depth unless you really connect. And if you think about a time when you've gone through something difficult in your life or a friend, um, and, and you can write a very sort of heartfelt piece on Facebook, but being there face to face so I can react in real time from your, emo- you know, on your emotions, you can react back to mine that, that, you know, I think the physical act of being there, right? The physical act of, of touch, um, of, of, you know, there's, what is this percentage? 9% of communication is, is verbal, right? The rest is about inflection and body language and, and context and all of these other things. You know, that's removed to large extent with social media. That's so interesting. So they've, they've calculated that out, that 9%, they've somehow isolated that 9% yeah. is verbal when most people would think 100% yeah. is basically. So, oh. so how can you, maybe this sounds like a, a hack or something, but how can you kind of improve your physical presence so that you can communicate more authentically or I don't know I don't know what I'm saying but I want to be able to basically make the people around me feel good about me sure and so it's selfish but uh how how can I improve the way I physically communicate oh it's a brilliant question look there's a few things we can do um just good eye contact and eye contact is an interesting thing because it varies from culture to culture but in general kind of just being able to to, to look at someone and, and and smile smiling is again we've got uh, you know it's 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 ingrained in us to kind of respond positively an open body stance sort of you know not kind of closed off not sort of hugging my body but but being open also naturally we'll begin to mirror each other I kind of notice the way that we're sitting now uh, right yeah. <laughs> we there begin, we go. <laughs> and that that's done subconsciously. In fact, with blinking, that's often done uh, subconsciously as well, and you do tend to mirror that. Um, the other thing you can do is, is genuinely answer the question. I think this is, and, and that comes from genuinely listening. We talk, you know, we think a lot and talk a lot about what we say, but the act of active listening, which is actually what psychologists do, right? So you really listen and you respond in real time. And I think what happens with a lot of people these days is and this I think comes from social anxiety we think about what we're going to say rather than responding to what the person is saying and so there's like this slight lag or disconnect so just being in that moment rather than again having this press release so I've got this great thing I want to tell you that I have to tell you but actually responding and having that kind of positive ping pong game back and forth I've thought a lot about this because one time someone said to me something um, similar which they said 
but they put it in more definitive terms where they said, if you're thinking about a response before the other person finished talking, then you're not really listening. And I'm not sure I 100% agree with that because while you were just saying that, I thought of something I wanted to ask you based on that, like, because I'm because I'm listening. If I wait, sometimes if I wait for the whole time, I forget what I wanted to sure. respond to. But the, again, th- this is really interesting that you say this because if you're doing that, also I know when to stop talking based on what you're doing. So what you tend to do, I can tell you want to talk. You'll raise your head slightly, and that means I'll probably sort of speed up and then slow down and kind of stop. Mm-hmm. Right. So even those cues mean that we're going to have a more positive discourse because I know that you've clocked something. I can see it from your body language, and like. You can see it from mine. But so the culturally, dance. Sometimes people, like I just now, I just interrupted you. Culturally, sometimes people interrupt uh, yeah. each other. And they do. And we know that there's gender differences based on this. But, um, I think I think look, there's there's been tomes written on interruption and power dynamics and this and that. But I think in general, between sort of the dyad, you find your rhythm as hu- as, as human beings. And unless there's a big power disparity, I think most people can, you know, can look at the difference between interruption being, oh my God, me too, I've got to tell you this. And between me saying, well, no, you need to stop talking now because I've got something more important to say. I think there's two different things. So, so, um, I did have, I did have a response. Oh, it was the, uh, eye contact. I only found this out recently. I always look at someone's mouth and I never had eye contact with people for a long, for like most of my life. Now I'm trying harder to do the eye contact thing. But is that I didn't realize that most people look at each other's eyes. I thought everybody just looks at each other's mouths. Well, it, it's the golden triangle, right? So it's eyes, mouth, and, and, and it's the two most commonly looked at places. But is it weird for someone to only look at the mouth? Like that's how I did it for. Did, seriously, you only looked at the mouth. Yeah. Oh, that's really interesting. I, I, you know, I don't, I don't know. I think it's, it's more common that you have like that triangle. But yeah, huh. that's, yeah, I don't know. Um. So okay. So so uh, in general with uh, all the Facebook and social media and Instagram. Again, I think if I totally unfollow, I feel I will miss, because so much of our lives now we've kind of placed on these platforms, I feel I will miss out a little on what's going on. Like for instance, the only way I'm able to keep track of my friends from when I was 10 years old is to look on Facebook at them. Sure. And I would never call up someone who I last spoke to when I was 10 and say, hey, Kenny, how's it going? <laughs> like, oh, how'd your kid do in soccer last night? Like, but yeah. I get to see it on Facebook and that gives yeah. me some pleasure as well. Sure. And I think there's definitely a, a place for it. I think the problem uh, is a problem of uh, of how often you do it and if you do it to the detriment of other relationships and also the reason behind it, right? So, um, you know, again, there's all this stuff written about how we used to go online to connect. Now we go online to compare. I don't necessarily believe that. I think we still go online to connect in some ways. I think comparing is inevitable, <laughs> however. Um, and and I think we just need to make sure that we 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 get a handle of that, right? So, uh, you know, it's this idea of, and I have, you know, clients that sit across from me uh, all the time. They'll be like, oh, look, all my friends are engaged or all my, you know, all my friends are having babies. And again, you know, we, we've got, I kind of wonder if our if our brain is sort of playing catch up to this tech, right? Because, you know, from our old sort of 
brain, we are conditioned to seek out stuff that um, that we're thinking about, right? Did you ever want to buy a TV and you see like TV ads everywhere? Have you ever seen, felt that yeah, happen? Yeah. Or you, oh my God, like there's TVs everywhere. And there's a part of your brain, I think, you know, it's a reticular activating system that that kind of uh, that, that brings up these things. It helps you. It used to help you find berries or whatever back in the day. <laughs> and now it helps you focus on what you're thinking about. The problem is with the online world is that you have... You know, if you are looking for something, you can find that in in isolation to everything else, right? So I can we speak about these echo chambers. We speak about, you know, looking for you know for the news that we want. So we used to say, don't believe everything you read. Now we say, you know, you shouldn't read everything you believe. And I think that that's uh, that's really important, really profound. So, so interesting in that, like, let's say, and you see this happen um, in particular on social media in America involving politics, all the. Hillary supporters will read only stuff about <laughs> Hillary and all the Trump supporters will only read stuff about yeah. Trump and they'll never meet in the middle. In fact, there's probably no discussions in the middle. It, it, absolutely. So the thing, it's, it's like such an hour. We've got so much more media, right? But what happens? Because there's so much more, I need to be noisier. So for me to be noisier, I need to be much more sensationalist, which means I need to be much more alarmist. So we're either constantly being told that we're going to be blown up by a terrorist or like some massive illness is going to get us, or, like you said, you know, we just kind of listen to the voices that that we want to hear and that substantiate our view. And actually, that's you know, I think you should have a good dose of what you do. You know, you don't believe in every day. Like if you if you're generally a CNN watcher, turn on Fox. And likewise, if you generally watch Fox, turn on CNN. I think it should be mandatory. You know, I kind of think of when I used to teach at a university, and I would I'd speak about bad science, and I tell my students that we we're starting off, like my doctoral students, like it's so easy. You could literally write a thesis and substantiate all of your points, right? You don't want to do that. You want to, you know, look at the, the the authors, you know, look at the researchers that are that don't agree with you and then tell me, you know, where they're right and also where they're wrong. But you need to learn to think critically. And I worry for my daughter's generation that, you know, you can just, you know, have this straight line to what you already think. It's it's not a it's not the best. So l- let me tell you then my my next therapeutic issue I need help on with social media. <laughs> so so if I write an article, like I said, I mentioned I mostly use social media for my own business purposes or to share something I write or a video I do. So if I write an article and it doesn't immediately get like a huge number of likes, like I've even calibrated it to the second, how many likes it needs in the first minute for me to feel like it's good. Like I need that outside validation. So so I feel like I've gotten over that a little bit. Uh, but for years, that's been like the bane of my existence. Like if I write, and then if I write something and it doesn't get enough likes, I have to write another thing to try to get that validation back. It puts me in this frenzy. Why do you write? I mean, I do write because when I write something that is beautiful to me, it feels really good. But there's a second reason, which is more dangerous which is I definitely write to get other people to like me. Right, right. And look, you know, I, I think you, you know, you're not dissimilar to the, everyone else on the planet in that way. We do things, we create um, because it, it's in us. But actually, again, by virtue of the fact that we're social beings and, and, and our identity is bound up in what we create, then that identity needs to be confirmed by others, right? So it's it's interesting thing, identity. It's, you know, it's simultaneously what makes us different, but it's also what binds us together with a group, right? So your identity as a very knowledgeable theorist or a good writer it's who you are. It's what makes you different. But if you don't have people kind of going, oh my God, you read like James's new, you know, new newsletter, it's brilliant. Then actually, th- does that confirmation happen? And I think 
the interesting thing is that years ago, you'd have a much smaller group or, you know, to kind of right. validating that. Now, you have people out there, James, that don't have a vested interest in you feeling good about yourself. Actually, there's people out there that would find it interesting if you didn't. And you've got to ask yourself, do I give them, like, is the source not important? Like, I always say, you know, I kind of think of of all these sort of message boards, or whatever you want to call them, the comments. It's like a big bathroom door, right? It's a big old filthy bathroom door that anyone can kind of, you know, take out their pen and have at it. And you're going to have sort of thoughtful responses sometimes on bathroom doors, I get. But you're going to have a lot of stuff that that's because I'm having a bad day. Why should you have a good one, right? So I think there's there's something really important about the source and who's giving you that validation and maybe kind of exploring if it's if it's quality or quantity and maybe you know that's that's what we've kind of sold our souls for quantity i was i was thinking saying this to my daughter um when we were talking about kind of posting online with her friends look by the way uh we've completely See? Our, See? Our, our body language again there you go so, sorry you're sorry. saying to your daughter no no i was saying um if i wanted to devise a cognitive exercise in poor self esteem um i would say take a bunch of pictures of yourself, or in your case, write something. Then I would say spend hours editing or Photoshopping. And then I would say, you know, uh, make sure you, you know, you choose the best draft and then kind of think of a really great title or really great hashtag and then put it online and wait. And if you don't get 50 likes in the first, what is it, you know, 15, 20 minutes, then take it down and start over again. And that would be the best way that I could destroy your self-confidence and self-esteem. And that is something that from 12 years old And that's up, what I used to do well, with writing. Yeah. Uh, that's what so many people do day in, day out. And we wonder, we wonder why depression is off the charts. We wonder why anxiety, we wonder why all these things are increasing. And I think, look, I can't say definitively that, you know, there's a causal relationship here. Maybe it is that more anxious people post more and more depressed people surf. But I do think that there's something in that process of exposing myself for the world to see and then saying, go on, tell me what you think. And then having to deal with people either not noticing or saying something awful. Let's stop to take a quick break. We'll be right back. I just want to say thank you to everyone listening to this. I hope you enjoy what I've been doing. I don't ask for a lot, but please take a moment to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever it is you get your podcasts. It will only take you a second, but it will help other people discover the podcast. And my goal is to share this great content with as many people as possible. To see the show notes, just head on over to jamesaltucher.com slash podcast. While you are there, you can join my free insiders list to get notified when I post a new podcast. Once again, thanks so much for joining me on the journey of this podcast. So let's take an extreme. Your book's called Unfollow. What if you just, what what happens? Because I, I would never do this. What happens if I just unfollowed everyone, stopped going on social media? I mean, I guess I'd read my email occasionally to see who's trying to communicate with me. But what would I be happier if I just did all that? Or I, I don't know. I don't know. That's a very simple question. Yeah. No, no. I think it's a great question. I think I called it Unfollow because I thought it was a catchy title. But I also think... I think more about, to me, unfollow means think critically, right? So um, I don't think you have to unfollow everyone, but I think, I don't think everyone should matter the same. <laughs> I think, you know, it, it, everyone's opinion has, the, you know, it's it's the same little thumbs up thing, right? Or the same retweet or whatever. But actually, 
does it matter? Like, does my opinion on food matter as much as a food critic's? No, and nor should it, because I don't know the same amount of food. Or, you know what I mean? But you're you're an economist. You've got a background in in business and stuff. You, you clearly you've got all this knowledge that I don't have. So my opinion on Bitcoin would be completely you know irrelevant. Yours matters, and so to me, well, we'll see. Well, <laughs> I'm sure it's certainly a lot more than mine. Um, but the point is. We're, it just it seems like one amorphous mass. So we want quantity, we want numbers. And I think with me, unfollow is much more about think about, you know, who you're following, whose opinion, whose ideas, and who really matters. So you can still be on social media, just maybe you need that kind of raincoat of, of self-esteem and self-worth. Yeah, it's still hard to kind of like get that validation feeling. You know, you no matter what, I feel like we're, we're primates, we're in a tribe, every tribe's ranked from alpha to omega. And the great thing about human is you could diversify your tribe. So I can say, oh, I'm going to have, I'm going to, I'm going to write something and my tribe is going to be the people who like me. And then I can feel good or bad alpha to omega, but you could diversify. You could say, okay, no, instead my tribe is going to be this, which is a much smaller group. And so I don't need as many likes or whatever, but it's hard to, it's hard to do that. It's hard to switch tribes. We've gotten, we've gotten addicted to using kind of Facebook, Instagram, all these things is our tribe. Well, interestingly, so if you look at the maximum number of people that we can actually mentally keep a hold of in our lives, I, I think it's around 100, just over 100. I can't remember the exact yeah, number, right? Yeah, there's famous uh, Dunbar number, Indeed. which is 150. Yeah, there you go. Um, so we know that, I think it's Gore-Tex does their companies in like little groups of hundreds or 150 because they know that that's the way that the, the, their industry works a lot better, which I think is fascinating. Um, so this idea that we can have meaningful connections or relationships with thousands of people or that thousands of people should matter. I think that's very new. And I think that's probably feeding into the insecurity because the fact of the matter is there, there's no way that whatever you do, you know, that amount of validation um, is, is always going to come with the downside of people saying the opposite or people, you know, it, it, it's just the way the, the online world works. Well, let me ask you, like when you were doing these reality TV shows, I'm sure you would walk around in the street and people would come up to you and say, oh, I saw you in Celebrity Fit Club, or I know you from somewhere. Where do I know you from? And you'd say, and oh, I'm such a big fan. And then you'd feel good, probably. Yeah, look, it's 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 interesting. So um, I've been on TV in the, in the UK for a long time. So um, I, it's funny, people kind of know me as a psychologist. Because again, I do like, you know, I'm on a morning program or news program. So I'll often get asked, my advice, and I actually prefer that. So it'll be like, "Oh, you're that you're that psychologist off the telly." Can I ask you something? So to me, I feel that um, that there's something about connecting in in a meaningful way. That way, it's nice to be you know recognized to a point. But I, you know, I am also very aware that there's probably people writing really horrible things online. So I think I've always lived by the you know the the, the mantra. I, I never berate myself too much, nor do I congratulate myself too much on my successes or my failures or indeed what people think, because I can only try and have the integrity that I have do as well as I can. I know I'll mess up sometimes, but I think that's really kept me sane and and kind of, uh, yeah, and kind of the stuff that really matters. Like I'll pass it by the people closest to me, like my husband who I've been with since I was sort of 21 and, you know, and I know has my background, you know, I'll make sure I kind of pass through, you know, big decisions with my parents, my close friends. And I kind of feel it feels okay to me, even if I, you know, people are like, wow, that's amazing. I know it's not that, probably not that great. Or they're like, oh, that's awful. I probably know it's not that bad either. That sounds like probably a really boring way of looking at things, but it's kind of kept me sane, I think, with all this stuff. Do you think it avoids the, I mean, some people say, oh, celebrate small successes so that you always kind of 
you know, charge yourself up with the little successes so you keep driving in that direction. Do you have do you think you've missed out on that a little bit? No, because I, I really, I, I believe in, I call them micro-ambitions. I think we should all be micro-ambitious. I think one of the biggest problems is that we kind of focus on something out there in the horizon and we miss kind of like that that sparkly thing out of the corner, right, of, of your eye where you see something. Um, uh, t- Tim Minchin actually talks about this. He's a fabulous comedian, very bright, and he did a great commencement speech. I remember speaking about this, but there is something about... Oh, I've seen that, a video of that commencement oh, speech. Oh, he's so good. I think he's fantastic. But he you know, he's, he speaks about this, and I always have as well, this idea of like, okay, I want to you know, become, I don't know, leader of the free world, but maybe <laughs> getting onto that course that I never thought I'd get on is a great first thing, or actually maybe... It's not leadership because I want to change the world. It's leadership because I, I you know, I want to be part of a group and, and help motivate them. So maybe I want to do something different. And I think that allows you to kind of um, be more fluid around your ambitions and also around the things you feel positive about. So what are what are some micro ambitions that that you have? Like what are examples of micro ambitions? Wow. What are micro ambitions that I have? <laughs> what? Well, God, that's that's interesting. Um, what? So what are your micro ambitions? Are you, do you want me to tell yeah. you? Do you want me to tell you what yours are? Yeah. I don't know what yours are. What, what, tell me what your big one is. What, what's the big ambition? I guess, I mean, I want, I like to know, and this is maybe one of those that kind of go in the direction of too much wanting validation, but I like the number of downloads on each podcast episode to go higher and higher until it's infinite. I get frustrated I feel, if I feel worse podcasts have higher downloads than me. I get upset about that. So that definitely affects me. I like doing now, and this is a more recent one over the past year, I like doing uh, stand-up comedy. So I want a group of 14 people listening to me to laugh, which is better than wanting 100,000 people to read my articles. You know, it's a little more sort of in control or not, depending. Um, I don't know. So it's interesting because you've got... um, and I do think they're incongruent, but you have this on the one hand, you want to do good work, right? You, you're, you're, creative, you can, you're a creative person. Um, but on the other hand, there, there's, there's a real kind of importance for this acknowledgement. Uh, and I wonder if, um, if, if the need for acknowledgement comes from, from the fact that you, you want people to, to see you, to, to consume it rather than just the tell you that it's good. I, I get the feeling that you're the type of person that isn't afraid of sort of deconstructing something, look at, you know, looking at what's not working. I mean, you've very famously written and spoken about your failures as much as your successes, which I think is awesome and, and so important to do. And I think that's actually very refreshing, again, in a world of spin and, and right. PR. So when you talk about I, I need the downloads, I need the bigger numbers, I don't know. I, I, if if I was your therapist, I kind of deconstruct why that is. Like, what does a dig, you know bigger number mean? Does it mean you're doing better work? I'm not sure it necessarily means that, really, because like you said, some really not so great podcasts get lots and lots of downloads, right? And some brilliant ones don't get noticed at all. So, what what is it really? What does that number mean to you? Why is it so validating? Is it about eyes on you? Is it? You know? Yeah, I don't know. I think if you take it to an extreme, I feel I feel at some point. This is how I get love is from total strangers listening to a podcast or reading an article or whatever. So it fills it fills a hole in the in the heart. Right, right. And and then And then, and the great thing about social media is you can get that that hole filled. Yeah. Or you can it can do the opposite, right? So it can do that, but then yeah. it can be taken away just as quickly because it's it's very fickle in nature and and you know and, and we know that sometimes people you know, decide to do things because everyone else is doing it. So there, there is something I think about taking away some of that power from the other, right? And how do you do the other that? Group. 
I think it's about thinking about what is it about your work that you like, that, you know, no matter what I say, right, no matter how many times I don't like, what do you like about it? What do you like about your writing, about your thinking, about your comedy? What is it that, you know, that inspires you? You know, regardless, if there was no one else, if we lived on this small island, the small tribe, there wasn't, you know, all these people, would it be any less? I don't know. I mean, you kind of think of amazing artists, right, throughout history who died penniless, you know, did their work, did it, was it any less beautiful because it wasn't acknowledged in their time? And does, does your story have to, have to mean that you have to have this acknowledgement? And if you don't, are you, are you less talented? Are you less valid uh, as a creative person? So I think a lot of people do feel that they're less valid, less talented. And I think it's wrong because again, look around you. There's so many examples you know, uh, with all due respect, your country sort of voted somebody in, and I know half the population are very, uh, slightly over half, very happy with it. But I think uh, the other half would argue that that maybe this wasn't the best uh, person for the job for for a lot of reasons. Yet, because of timing, because of circumstances, right, he managed to ascend somewhere. So I don't think we all get what we deserve, James. I think, you know, we all live with this just world hypothesis, right, with relationships. Oh, they're, you know, they found someone. Of course they did. It's not a meritocracy. See, some of the loveliest people I know are single. Some of the most, you know, unlovely people I know uh, are married. You know, likewise with success. Absolutely, perseverance helps. Absolutely, intellect and hard work. But you know what? Serendipity helps. Luck helps. Timing. Timing is huge. You know, you speak about economics and when you've bought stuff and when you haven't. You know, you know, kids in, in the UK now have a hell of a time buying a flat. When I was their age in their 20s, I could buy one very easily. So this idea, again, that we berate ourselves or uh, congratulate ourselves too much, I think we have to take it a little bit with a pinch of salt. You know, there, there's there's so much else that goes into to our successes and our failures. So simply being aware of what... I mean, I guess though I've always been aware of this need for validation, but it doesn't really help me that much. Like being aware of it hasn't, only switching my interests has helped. Because if I switch my interest, I don't need to be as good an X, I can be now a Y. And I, but I still need that validation as a Y. Well, maybe it's about thinking about the source then, kind of think about it. So, so say last night, with, uh, it, was, it was so much fun watching you do the comedy. It, I don't know who your comedy hero is, right? So instead of the numbers there, because it was a small group, it was like a Monday night, there wasn't a lot of people. So the mon- numbers weren't big, but you know, you were very, very like, there was lots of laughter, lots of clapping. Wouldn't it have mattered more if that validation came from somebody who you've, you'd thought about, who you thought of, you know, um, understood uh, comedy in a more complex way, in a more meaningful way, rather than just lots and lots of people? I guess what I'm trying to say is we need to get a bit back to basics when it comes to how much we let people manage the way we see ourselves. I don't think you should give so much power over to how, you know, to, to strangers for how you see yourself. I don't think that's fair on you. Yeah, I mean, I think that's true. On the one hand, the validation from strangers is a little bit of a way of determining how good you are or not. And I agree, sometimes the worst writers get the most likes or whatever, and sometimes the best don't. So that does happen in society and, and in any field. But still... It te- if you get a lot of readers, it tells you some uh, you're doing something right that gets a lot of people to like what you're doing. Because be- really bad writers will always get zero 
readers. Not always, but most of the time. But did you, uh, again, and, and I think it was really interesting, but wasn't it Fifty Shades of Grey sold more books than, I don't know, how many other? And yeah. it was, you know, again, I, 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 nothing against Fifty Shades of Grey. I mean, I, I haven't read it, but I've, I've read reports that it wasn't necessarily the best writing, but I think it had literally millions and millions and millions of downloads. So I would, you know, I would... I would argue against your point that sometimes, and that's not like, sounds like a really defeatist thing. I'm not saying we shouldn't try to be better and that better doesn't matter, doesn't ultimately get in the way, but I, 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 yeah, it doesn't ultimately get noticed. But I do think that there is something around this sort of linear uh, idea that if I'm good enough, I'll have more attention. I, I just don't think it's that linear. Well, I like what you said before, how, you know, almost like write down what it is you value. So if you're going to be a writer or an artist or a tennis player, write what you value in this, what what you would value as good. Maybe value, maybe what virtual mentors or heroes out there in your space would you want to emulate and move closer towards? And those could be like micro ambitions rather than a specific social media metric. And I think that's probably a valuable way to look at it because it could still be just as sincere. Like if you know... Let's say you're an artist and you know you want to think about things as well as Picasso. I'm just making up. Yeah. You, you're not going to do cubism because that's over, but maybe you'll th- read about how he developed a new style and you'll want to develop a new style in your own way, similar to how he did. And you could start to to emulate your heroes in, in new and unique ways and, and try very hard to measure yourself along those lines. Because eventually... I think the validation comes if you work hard enough. It it absolutely does. It absolutely does. And I think you, you mustn't become a slave to it, right? Because anyone that that's ever really rocked the world has, not, you know, has done something different in you. And different in you is always scary. Well, <laughs> and people don't. Well, you mentioned like it. I write a lot about failure, for instance. I can get addicted to writing about failure because I know It'll get people attention. like that. Yeah. yeah. So I always, I've written 3,000 articles about it. So <laughs> I I know that I have to switch things up. And I don't, and and I think that's a challenge to know how to mm. to figure out how new uh, new voices to speak with, or how your voice can speak about other things. Um, I'm sure you go through this as you write. You know, mm-hmm. you're on your ninth book, you'll do your tenth book. Like you always have to think of something new and unique yeah. to um. to do. Even if somebody really likes unfollow. You have to then think about the next thing yeah. rather than just do unfollow too. No, indeed, indeed. But I think it's such a great time for this because. Um, you know, it used to be that learning was something that was really hard to do. So my, um, you know, my, my my grandmother didn't have barely any education. My father had to drop out of school. And in between my grandmother basically being, you know, having difficulty reading, I, I got a PhD. So for my family, education was a really important thing. Very, it mattered very, very much. And it matters very much to me. But what I love about my daughter's generation is that she can go on a sort of Khan Academy and teach herself how to code without me there. She can listen to videos and podcasts like this and, and think about it. So I think there's so many opportunities to think differently, to learn from each other. And and I think I think it's good that um you know, we don't have to just have these, you know, gurus that went to these specific universities and learned these specific things, but actually we can speak to people that are doers, right? That have built businesses yeah. and and learned through, you know, through difficulty and through struggle what it is. And we've got all this access. So to me, you know, that's kind of the good side of, of what technology is bringing to us, sort of, yeah, so different to what it was just a few decades ago, right? Do you ever see um, the YouTube star uh and now she's really broken out in many media but uh miranda sings no oh so she i think she was going to school here in new york city 
So like opera, she was studying opera and she saw all her dorm mates trying to become YouTube stars by singing great, like by looking good and singing great opera and making all this, you know, making YouTube videos of themselves singing while looking beautiful. And so what she did was she put on the worst clothes. <laughs> she made her hair like all in tangles or whatever. And she put lipstick like all over her basically lower mouth. So it was all messed up. And then she would sing so out of tune that it was ridiculous. <laughs> and even though in real life, she's very beautiful and is a great opera singer, this is what she called this character Miranda Sings and it became hugely popular. So huge. Wow. So my kids were like super fans. So I took my kids to see her perform. There were like 10,000 kids in the audience all dressed like Miranda Sings. Because <laughs> again, she was sort of telling them to reject mm, this norm mm, of perfection on mm. social media. And I like to think that that backlash is is sort of happening mm. a little bit out there. Yeah, I, I I hope so. Actually, I noticed something similar. I saw my this my daughter. This was a couple of years ago, and and um, she still does it now. Sending these really ugly pictures to her friends when they like, here's my nostril, here's my 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 weird eyebrow, like in a weird way. I'm like, what are you doing? And she's like showing me that they're sending these really awful pictures back and forth and it's sort of like an anti-selfie and I'm like ah maybe this is a good thing maybe uh, this is reclaiming that kind of the duck face the kind of you yeah. know let me look stunning and I thought there might be something behind this because one of the things that we know as well is kids that are much more resilient on social media are the ones that know about coding for example and it, it kind of reminds me of that Wizard of Oz thing that you know when you take the curtain uh, back so you see who's pulling the string so you kind of know about the metrics that I want to keep you on this longer you know about variable reward. You know what I mean? You know about some of the tricks. And so I wonder because their generation, right, you know, Gen I, whatever they're being called, um, is a bit more savvy that maybe, yeah, maybe they're like reclaiming their their identity. So here, here's another devil's advocate. So I was, um, I was eating in a restaurant the other day and there was a whole table of kids, like maybe they were like 18, 19 years old. And um, maybe at any given point, I would look over and about half the kids would be talking to each other and half, but always a different half, would be staring down, looking at their phones, doing, you know, scrolling Instagram or whatever. And at first I was really, I had like a knee-jerk reaction, like, oh, that's, this is horrible. Um, because I picture my own kids doing that and I would get upset at them at the dinner table if they were doing that. But maybe these kids are a little introverted and they were just, they're in this group of 15 kids that are all talking to each other and that could be very socially intense and, and energy draining. Maybe every now and then social media is good for like a timeout from whatever. So it's a very easy timeout. You don't have to leave. Yeah. You could just like mentally disconnect a little bit. Yeah, Or you could hide behind yeah. it. Or you could not engage, right? And I think, see, I think, I think being in uncomfortable situations is really, really important for young people. I think it's really important to come out of your comfort zone and to do stuff that mm. feels weird. And I think that um, sometimes it's it just being on that phone makes it a hell of a lot easier to to not engage, to not confront those difficulties. Right. So whereas I, I get what you're saying, it, you know, it, it, it might be nice to sort of not feel as, you know, self-conscious or as shy and hide behind it. I don't think that's going to ultimately solve the problem. So, yeah. 
Yeah, that's a good point because I guess what if they're in an uncomfortable situation and there is no phone to look down on, then they're going to be really lost. Well, yeah. Because they got, a, they got used to an easy solution to a difficult social situation. Well, absolutely. And again, you know, we, and I'm, I, I'm sure you must think about this with your kids. I think about it all the time, right? This idea that the jobs of today don't exist tomorrow and AI taking over this and that. And, and I think one of the things that, that they need to be is as human as possible because that's a, one of the hardest things for, you know, at least artificial narrow intelligence to recreate. And what is humanity? It's what, what, what we were speaking about at the beginning, right? The idea that I, I get a feeling that you really are interested in what I'm saying or, I'm, you know, maybe I'm speaking a bit too long so I be quiet so you speak or I get to make you feel better if you feel bad or you get to tell me I'm, you know, it's it's that kind of, it's that nuanced interaction and how on earth am I, you know, are they going to get that if they're not in those situations? And And I think the other thing that also worries me slightly is is how we age segregate. Again, some of my most important mentors or my like, you know, weirdo aunts and my quirky grandma. Like there's something really important about not getting advice from other 14-year-olds when you're 14. And I think the online world, again, it's quite isolating in that sense, right? So, and I think we even do it, right? So I kind of have, you know, end up having friends that are all kind of similar to me. Um, but I think if that starts happening when you're at such a young age, again, that just reinforces this uh, this script that you're given of who you ought to be. And I think, you know, having people as di- you know more diverse age wise who kind of have a different perspective is so important. Well, I I I like this idea now that we spoke about before of doing the anti selfie, like <laughs> even trying that as an exercise. Like my I want to try. I think my next ten photos that I post anywhere are going to be just disgusting. <laughs> So I want to have like my nose running and like up my nose. And I think that's probably a good exercise to kind of get out of your comfort zone using social media. So out of my comfort zone would be not posting at all or posting things of me totally doing bad things. Yeah, not PRing yourself. Kind yeah. of being like, you know, it doesn't have to go out of your way to, you know, to be off, but just sort of like this, the PR, the kind of airbrushing of one's life. Yeah. I was like, I thought what you did last night was amazing. And it was so cool. What, what, which, what? When you took the picture, oh, right? yeah. you're like, Linda, I'm really nervous. And I'm not, there's not a lot of people there. And you picked it up and you, you know, and, and you were like, this lighting's weird. And you're like, you took it anyway. I thought that was yeah. brilliant. So, um, so now I want to talk about what men say and what women hear. <laughs> so I don't, so I don't mess up on my next, uh, relationship. <laughs> so what do men say and what do women hear? <laughs> what so, are the most common ways men mess up? That's all I care about. I'm selfish. <laughs> It's 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 an interesting question, and I think it's it's kind of a, a very politically sensitive question. But the fact of the matter is, there's no way men and women, by virtue of of, of you know of natural selection, the way that we evolved, will have evolved to have the exact same ways of communication, right? So, um, you know, there's there's a, f- a few studies that attest to the fact that women are more in tune with sort of negative emotions, so they experience more worry, more anxiety, more guilt. Um, we also um, why is that you think? Because I, I think from an evolutionary per- perspective, um, it I think you you know we would have not needed to pick up on the problems at hand. So while you were out there kind of being very goal driven, must kill whatever animal, I think we needed to see if, if little Mikey was choking on that red berry and remember that red berries are really bad because you know they kill little Mikey and and so make sure then little Susie doesn't have one. So I think kind of I think we you know. Uh, I think we selected for that trait. Um, I also think that that culturally, 
um, there's more space made for that for women, right? So you guys are socialized into being problem solvers. I think uh, that's still that kind of hyper-masculine thing leaves very little space for it, which is why I think, again, in very general terms, um, you tend to find men feeling more comfortable showing anger than sadness because it's a more sort of socially sanctioned, you know, for you to punch something when you're angry rather than cry, even today, in almost 2018. <laughs> um, well, well, you say almost 2018, but really in the course of millions of years yeah. of primates, it's a small blip in time. Indeed, indeed it is. In- but you're really told, it's not that, I maybe it is true that men don't cry as much, but I also think men are afraid to cry in front mm. of women mm. <laughs> because women are not going to, because of this evolutionary thing, it's not like women are going to say, oh, he's so soft and gentle because he cries. Mm-hmm. Women don't want to see men cry, I don't think. <sighs> I don't know. I mean, that's I, a naive way to look at it. Yeah, I do, do you know what? I, I, I don't know. I think... I think sometimes strength comes from being able to say I can't cope rather than pretending you can. I just, you know, and if if crying is a way of saying, do you know what, I, I, I need help with this or this is... Because to me, part the first step to coping is saying I can't cope. <laughs> you know, I need help. I need to look at this a different way. I need support. That's really important. I think it's much more pathological just plodding on and pretending everything's okay. So I think if it's construed like that, I think, you know, most people would find that quite a healthy response. Yeah. So, so, okay. So let's say, and what you said, what, what you said before, how uh, men t- tend to be more problem solving. I think I find that's a common argument in relationships or in my prior relationships, like someone will say something, a woman will say something, um, a, a problem she has, and I'll say, oh, why don't we try X, Y, and Z to fix it? And, and a, a response might be, uh, uh, I didn't ask you to fix it. I'm just tell- I just wanted you to listen to what I'm going through. Yeah. Yeah, and and, and you're right. You kind of hear that a lot. And I think, you know, a, it, it's again, it's the way that we ap- approach emotion and problems, right? So I think um again, women uh and and even in sort of I think in female relationships, we tend to be much more sort of, you know, open about emotion, so the language that we use tends to to be um, sort of deeper, more interesting, so we feel more comfortable with it. I think guys in general with sort of guy relationships, they the same depth doesn't necessarily exist. So again, it's I you know it's hard for I think a lot of guys. To, God, that's loud. Is that okay? We get yeah. Mad? How come they don't soundproof these studios? <laughs> Should right. I stop and continue? No, no, no. I, I, right? I like mistakes in this Okay, series. I'm sorry. No, I'm, I'm used this to what I'm filming. It's 70-30 imperfection in a <laughs> podcast. Love that. Love that you're represented. Um, so, sorry, what was I saying? Yeah, so I think you often find this thing that a girl wants to just say, this is what happened. So you can say, God, that that really sucks. That's awful. How are you feeling? As opposed to, well, what you needed to do was this. Because I think sometimes it can be seen you know, as a criticism, or sometimes it can be seen that you're being impatient and you're hurrying me along. I'm telling you how awful it was. So we, you know, we can talk about it and we can like bond over this awful experience. And you're like, well, next time, take the other highway. It's, it never has as much traffic. You won't have as many problems. Yeah. So what what should I say instead? Listen again, active listening. So next time, and just sort of reflect back, sort of like, and uh, you know, there's something in psychology um, again with active listening, where if you say something, I I try and reflect back, not exactly what you said, but something deeper. So you you know, you might say, "Gosh, Linda, you know, I've had to do this podcast today, then I've got to write a bunch of articles, and I have this meeting, and I'm really tired." And instead of me saying, "Oh, James, it sounds like you're tired," I might say, "Gosh, James, it sounds like you know, you feel slightly overwhelmed that there's a lot on your plate right now." Now. I'm actually going one step 
deeper than what you're saying. And, and if I do that, and if I do that right, you're like, oh my God, yeah, I just feel like there's so much on my plate right now. And I feel like, you know, everyone wants a piece of me. And then maybe I reflect back. So you actually feel that there's like, you know, there's not enough of you to go around. You feel that everyone wants something for you. And maybe like there's very little left for you. And if I get that right, you're like, oh my, and do you understand? We're kind of going deeper. So I'm not saying you've got to do therapy with your partner. But what I am saying is if you really oh, I'm listen. I'm going to start doing therapy with everybody now. <laughs> if you really listen, you then have a deeper connection, that experience. And actually then that becomes, you don't need to solve it for me because you know what? You've acknowledged it. And I know I find it difficult to say no, and maybe I should say no to more projects. But the fact that you know that I know that I find it difficult and that we've consoled each other on, you know, about it being a bit hard, then it makes me feel better. So what's um what other things that men say? <laughs> I want to know the whole list. <laughs> um, I do. I'm trying to think of. I wrote the book a while back. I'm trying to think of examples. I'm I'm single, so I need to. <laughs> you need to. All, this, um, maybe I'm single for a reason. I need the full arsenal. <laughs> um, I do. I think different things mean different things to 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 each other. So. Again, I remember speaking to couples and, you know, I remember uh, one woman saying to me um, that, you know, he leaves things on the floor. It's so disrespectful. It's disgusting. You know, I'm picking up his, you know, his clothes. Like, I hate it. And and for him, it's like, no, no. Like, I'm not trying to be disrespectful. It's just like, I'm tired. So I took it off and left it on the floor. I didn't expect you to pick it up. So I think this idea of jumping to conclusions. So you leaving your, you know, your underwear on the floor means that you don't respect me. And kind of, you know, having that discussion of like, well, maybe let's not jump to that conclusion. You're reading it like that. But for me, leaving it on the floor was I just wanted to jump into bed and, and cuddle with you because I hadn't seen you all day, right? Or you telling me, oh, are you going to have dessert? I hear, wow, you know, you're eating dessert again. You know, you put on a few pounds. But you mean, oh my God, should we share one? Because, you know, I love, you know, I love when we kind of share this dessert together. It reminds me of the dessert we first met. I don't know. Are you saying I look fat? I don't CJ, <laughs> we need to talk about <laughs> Not at all. So you need to kind of, I think, um, make sure you clarify, right? And you, you know, you don't jump to conclusions about what the other person means. So you know, this having this tool of when you say X, I hear Y, I think is one of the best tools in any kind of communication in business, in relationships. So when you say, you know, you come to work late, I hear, you know, I do my job terribly. Is that right? And you can say, actually, yeah, Linda, I think you do. You know, we, we need to kind of stop this. Or you can say, no, I think your job is is done brilliantly. But I think when you come to work late, it means it has a knock-on effect for the rest of my day or whatever the case is. So I think, you know, clarifying what we mean, not jumping to conclusions is a, is a really big one. Okay, so the, the act of listening where you go one step further, that's an amazing technique. The clarifying, great technique, number three. Number, <laughs> number I'm putting three. you on the spot. You are, you are. Um, you wrote I, this book like years ago. I know, so. I just think it's like the book is like, no, I think. Bring I think, it out of the memory. No, I think those two. And I think also understanding, and this is a really important one, because we're socialized differently to express emotions. For some of us, um, it's very easy as partners to, to get caught up in a cycle. So if I'm a talker, I come and you come home and, you know, I start saying, James, you know, I'm really upset you come home and and you don't talk and, you know, and we don't like spend enough time together and look at the mess and you've left stuff on the floor again. And, you know, so I'm nagging, I'm talking, I feel the need to connect with you. I feel the need to talk. But your go-to place is to withdraw because you feel attacked because you're like, oh my God, what do I do now? I'm going to walk on eggshells. I'm going to get really quiet. 
But the more you get quiet, what do I do more? I need to bring you out. So I, I then speak more. And we get into, you know, dragged into this negative cycle. The more I nag, the more you withdraw, the more you withdraw, the more I need to be heard. And so I think recognizing that sometimes we communicate without communicating is really important. And I think this is another big difference between men and women as well. I think for a lot of people, uh, I think, you know, intimacy can mean very different things. I think ultimately the only way we become intimate is by being vulnerable, right? I think, you know, that's why when you're little, you tell someone a secret and if they keep your secret, you become best friends and it's great. But even later on, like through sex or everything, there's a, there's a, there's a sense of vulnerability. I think for men, Showing that intimacy, again, whether this is evolutionary or through socialization, because you guys aren't called sluts, you're not slut-shamed the way women are, you're not kind of, you know, it's a very different thing. I think you show intimacy physically much quicker. It seems to be a go-to thing, whereas I think women need to feel emotional intimacy before they can have physical intimacy. So I think for a lot of um, uh, couples that I've seen, one of the complaints that I often get is like, we have this argument, and then he wants to fool around. I don't want to fool around. And he's like, but we've had this argument and I, and I want to be close. Like, I, I want that because that's my way of connecting. So don't ascribe, you know, meanings based on your interpretation, right? It may be that that's your way of saying sorry. Or it may be that, be, you know, my way of saying sorry is that we really need to talk before we touch. And I think there are gender differences in that as well. So that's, I would say that's two and a half because <laughs> that's a little bit related to the clarification. It is, it is. But it's also about the circularity that you get into. It's also related to kind of, so whether it's the, the nag withdrawal cycle or whether it's this this misinterpretation. I think intimacy is such a big one with, with relationships. Another one, and, and this is this is interesting. The, the vulnerability thing is very interesting. Is, like yeah. I think understanding the ways in which to accept the other's vulnerability, I think could bring people closer. So, so much so. And, you know, there's nothing, you know, there's this this song by Emily Sande that's called, um, there's a line in it called Show Me You're Ugly. And I just love that song because I think we all feel a bit, you know, there's an ugly part of us inside that we feel that we have to hide. And if you can get to that level of intimacy that there's someone that sees that and doesn't see it as ugly and accepts it and even kind of mm -hmm. likes it, I think it's one of the most wonderful things, but you have to get to the point of showing them that ugly piece of you. I think that is, I think that is key. I think that is so hard. And that's the thing that people are afraid of most, particularly like in beginning, whether it's relationships or friendships or work relationships or whatever. No, I, I think you're, I'm going to totally right. steal that line. Show me you're ugly. That's a great line. <laughs> it is, who, isn't who, it? I've never heard of that song before. So no one's going to oh, hear of it. And I'm going to, I'm going to be able to write it with that title. No one will know. Yeah. You, you, except you, you for the take 300,000 listeners to this. <laughs> so, um, what, uh, I had a question, another question about relationships. Um, when do you think, when do you think people uh, barring kind of, uh, abusiveness or mental illness or cheating or other things, when do you think people should break up? When do you think a man and a woman, a couple should break up or end a relationship? Um, so I think that um, one of the, the biggest indicators you should break up is when you're arguing to hurt rather than to understand each other better. I think that's a big one. In fact, um, uh, Gottman, the Gottman Institute, Gottman Research, they, they've kind of, they've been doing this for years. I think they're, uh, they're a couple of, of psychologists and they're able to predict with very high levels of accuracy which couples will stay together and which will separate based on how they argue. And when they kind of isolate factors, one of the factors they look at is contempt. Contempt's a very ugly thing, uh, right? I've heard, I've heard 
So, so I've heard that expression before. Contempt uh, in in relationships is very dangerous. It, it is. What does contempt mean? It's uh, it's a lack of respect. Um, it's uh, it's a, it's almost a, a disregard, a disgust. It's kind of um, it, it, it's it's to look down on someone, to belittle. It's it's all the bad things. So and 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 I think that's the thing. If if we're arguing, and I know like the one thing I shouldn't bring up is you know, I don't know, the, the color of your jacket. And I'm constantly saying it's it's a blue jacket. You've chosen blue again. It's a worse color jacket. And I know that I could talk about anything. I could talk about the color of your shirt or your trousers, or your, but that's what I'm focusing on. And then we're, we're starting from a place of, the, you know, it's it's very hard to bounce back. It's very hard to grow. And I think so that's... Let's say you're in a relationship and you sense that the other person is feeling contempt. Is there any way, like you say, it's very hard to bounce back. What could you potentially do to... I think you need to to restructure the way that you're communicating. Um, uh, I think you need to talk about how it makes you feel. And I think you need to talk about the fact that if it continues, whatever it is that you feel that's positive will po- probably go. Or if you do end up, you know, staying together, it'll be for the wrong reasons. And I think there's 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 a place there for actually seeking some some support if it's not something you guys can can do on on your own. So you, I feel like you've given me, should I pay you like $600? <laughs> like that's what therapists cost here in New York City per hour. So you've given me a lot of therapy, social media, relationships. Um, and also I want to think about this 70-30 rule. I think there's something there that that this idea that uh, imperfection is not only allowed and necessary, but it could be as high as 30%. Again, percentages are artificial there, but, yeah. but 70-30 is a good reasonable amount it is like in an average week you kind of have like you know you eat well most of the week for you know the weekend you know lay off of it for average week you you know you work out or you sleep well for the weekend you know go out have some fun for the average week you you know you tend to be you know consuming really positive media for those couple of days you know have that mental junk food that you kind of need but also like um even in communications, you can't you're not always gonna commu- you know how you like you you get back from a party and you always think, Oh, I should have said this or I should have said that. You gotta give yourself permission oh. for sometimes not doing the perfect thing. Oh, so gosh, many yeah. people have like uh you know, oh I, I blew it with that, you know, director or interviewer or whatever, and they think that's it, that's the end yeah. of all my opportunities. Yeah. I, I, I there's something about, you know, finishing the day and being done with it. I've I've always felt that at the end of the day, do you know what? You can only do so much. Finish the day and be done with it. Let it rest. I, I always try and hold on to that thought myself that, you know, holding on to it and playing with it in my brain like it's some sort of like, you know, Rubik's Cube or fidget spinner, it's it's not going to help. And it, it is. It's it's that ancient proverb, right? There's two things to worry about. You know, the stuff that I can control, in which case stop worrying and control it, and the stuff that I can't, in which case stop worrying and being able to kind of get to that place where you have more control of your thoughts rather than the other way around. And I know it's not easy, but I, I, I've i seen it happen, right? It's That's what I'm in the business of doing, right? I wouldn't have a job if, if we couldn't get more of a handle on our on our thoughts. But, it can be done. So so let's, let's talk about you for a second. <laughs> so written nine books. You've been on all, you're still on television all the time. You've been on all these reality shows. You've been on news shows everything you've been married what 25 years close uh, no 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 uh, i got married and, yeah almost 20 years is your is your child a juvenile delinquent or anything? <laughs> is she in jail no she she's, lovely. She's, she's lovely she's lovely 
So what's wrong with you? Like what's <laughs> what's vulnerable about you? What would you say is your vulnerability? Um, what's my nobody's listening? You could just it's okay, just you and your third. God, I don't know. I'm um, I, I'm I'm an only child. I had amazing, wonderful parents, but I think that the need to um to prove myself was a big thing that I you know that I you know struggled with. So this is sort of very similar to you. And I think one of the people that helped me so much with it was Teddy, my husband, and you know just this idea of again, there's got to come a point where you can only do so much and you know and some days you know the thing is some days that works really well and other days I, I sit there thinking no I, I must write another book and I must do another you know this or sure. that or, but but actually um you know having him and your 300,000 uh, listeners know that that's my vulnerability actually helps because you know what I, I'm not a like none of us are a perfect person and you know and and nor nor do I strive to be in the same way anymore. I kind of I'm, feel I'm, I've earned it. I'm gonna I'm gonna question this vulnerability though for a second. So your vulnerability is the fact that you have a successful 25 year old 25 year marriage with a man you're deeply in love with. <laughs> That's your vulnerability. <laughs> no, no, my my vulnerability is the need to constantly. Um, I, I guess, like you, sort of, you know, prove myself. Uh, saying no is difficult. You know, constantly yeah. being there. I think my my twenty five year relationship is is what kind of inoculates me against it a little bit because, you know, it's like you know when you remember when you you know your kids were little, right? And you'd do all these amazing things, and you'd come home and they'd pee on you, <laughs> right? And you'd be like, okay, this is real life, right? And I think that's what a good. I'm not suggesting anyone's peeing on anyone. It's like a really bad example. But what I'm saying, my kids did pee on me all the time. Right? They still it's do a, metaphorically. Metaphorically. Well, this is it. You need someone's better, and, and not in a bad way, but just to kind of like, you know what? The really important stuff. You know, it, it's again, and it's interesting. We've kind of come full circle, just like a therapy session. But the people that matter, right? The people that really know that you didn't mean to screw up, or the people that know that you, you know, it's kind of a fluke that it did so well. Your last show, your last podcast, your last research report. You know what I mean? That you work hard, but also, you know, the the planets line. The people that know that but love you anyway. The people that know that but allow you to 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 be you anyway. You know, words and all. I think that's what what gets me through it. So the vulnerabilities are there, but the 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 assets uh, are are the people that kind of tell me that it's okay to have them. Well, Linda Papadopoulos, this has been such a pleasure. Your book, Unfollow, just out in the U.S. I highly recommend it. You're a great storyteller. You don't get bogged down in all the academic stuff. Um, I have to actually check out all the the man manual and all the <laughs> books about relationships. Um, but it's such so interesting. I have so many the the show me you're ugly, the active listening where you add one more, the clarification, the seventy thirty. Where there's so many things that are gonna make my life better at least today. Because by tomorrow I'll I'll forget everything. <laughs> my memory's really bad lately. Do you find as you get into your forties, your memory? Gets a little declined. It 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 does it does it, and I think again, you know, I think all the gadgets do. It's sort of you uh, constantly yeah, I can outsource my memory to yeah, Google. Yeah, I don't have to remember all your books because I can look on Amazon. I don't know Amazon exactly. So, well, uh, Linda, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Such a pleasure. Time, you, how long are you in the U.S.? Uh, till Thursday. Till so, Thursday. Yeah, I'm glad you came in. Oh, it was a pleasure and to be unfollow here. Unfollow is a great book. I highly recommend it. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks. Next time on The James Altucher Show. I remember when I was in rehab, one of the first things one of the counselors said to me was, Rich, 
Are you a human being having a spiritual experience or are you a spiritual being having a human experience? And I was like, I don't fucking understand that question. I mean, like, can you repeat that? Like, I, you know, I still, and I think about that almost every single day, but I do believe that we're all spiritual beings having a human experience, that there are lots of things going on around us that we can't understand and perhaps could never understand because of the, the size of our brains not being large enough or whatever it is. And trusting in that and, and kind of getting to this place of surrender versus self-will has been one of the most powerful and, and helpful tools that has guided my life. Hey, I am so glad you listened to this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as well. Please take a moment to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts. It will only take you a second, but it will help other people discover the podcast. And my goal is to share this great content with as many people as possible. To see the show notes, just head on over to jamesaltucher.com slash podcast. While you are there, you can join my free insiders list to get notified when I post a new podcast. Every day, I also share my best and most controversial ideas. You won't get this stuff anywhere else. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next time.